0: Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you.
1: Hey, good morning, everyone. My name is Jason. I'm one of the deacons here, and uh, it's my privilege to get to bring the Word this morning. Uh, Let me start us off with a word of prayer. Father God, thank you for this morning. Uh, Thank you for all that you've done and spoken to us so far already today uh, we, we just pray as we come into your word this morning um, that you would speak to us um, god we we um, humble ourselves before you we offer our hearts to you and uh, we're just so grateful for um, all that you've done for us we pray all these things in jesus name amen all right, well, hey, so if you know me, um, you know that I'm a big fan of podcasts, right? Like if we've connected back on the back patio, we've probably talked about podcasts at some point. By a show of hands, how many of you are podcast people? All right, we've got a few. That's good. Um, one of the most popular podcasts of the past year was called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Some of you... I, probably heard it or heard of it, Uh, but for a good chunk of last summer, it was like in the top 10 most downloaded podcasts across all of Apple. Um, People were buzzing about it, people were writing articles about it. Uh, At one point, the the theme song made it into a Super Bowl commercial, (laughs) so it was a big deal. Um, It it was a big success. And, And one of the things that was surprising about its popularity was that this was a podcast that was produced by Christianity Today, and it told the story of a church, uh, Mars Hill Church in Seattle. And it followed the church's humble beginnings and how it began to grow, how it was doing a lot of, a lot of good for a lot of people, and how it became just massively influential, even in the midst of, of one of the most secular cities in the country. But then it told the story of how everything fell apart and and pretty much like collapsed overnight for this church. Thanks to a whole host of reasons, unhealthy leadership culture, lack of accountability, relationship um, challenges, plagiarism scandals, all sorts of things. And I, I almost, I see David in the back there, when this thing first came out, I, I told David I didn't think I was going to listen to it because I, I thought it was just going to be like entertainment of like watching a, like a car crash <laughs> in slow motion. Um, but actually, the, the point of the podcast wasn't to air dirty laundry, it wasn't to bash on this, this church, really it was, it was meant to be a cautionary tale, um, a way of, of drawing some lessons out to help all of us as followers of Jesus think about and guard ourselves against this sort of fall being repeated elsewhere, being repeated in our our own lives. Um, Because sadly, we know that that Mars Hill is is not alone. Um, We know that there have been many churches that have experienced their own rise and fall. Um, We've seen prominent ministry leaders who've experienced public scandals. And outside of the spotlight, just as you think around to your own life, you know, I'm sure many of us have friends or people that we know who were once walking closely with God and now seem to have veered way off course. So what causes arise and fall and and how do we guard against it in our own lives? This morning, we are continuing our series in the book of Judges, and we're going to be picking back up in the story of Gideon that Nick began for us last week. Uh, and if we were putting a title on this section of the Bible, we could call it The Rise and Fall of Gideon. Because um, as we saw last week, Gideon's story starts off strong. God uses him in powerful ways to put a stop to idol worship and to, to drive out Israel's enemies, the Midianites. The Midianites. But in the second half of Gideon's story, uh, he goes off the rails, he veers off course, he experiences a fall. And so as we look at his life this morning, we're going to identify three causes for his collapse, uh, three factors that it's important for us to guard against today as we seek to walk faithfully with God. So before we get to those factors, I just want to walk us through an overview of of Gideon's story, kind of take us through the the narrative arc. Many of us are familiar with the first half of Gideon's story. I I grew up in the church, so I remember lots of Sunday school lessons with the flannel graphs and everything where we talked about the first half. The second half doesn't get as much love. It's darker. It's harder to understand. No good flannel graphs for it. But (laughs) the first half, it begins in, in Judges 6, as we saw last week where an angel of the Lord appears to Gideon, and he tells him to tear down his family's altar to Baal. And then God tells Gideon that he's going to use him to deliver Israel from the oppression of the Midianites. But Gideon needs confirmation uh, that God is speaking to him, so he asks God to perform a set of miracles involving a fleece, and, and God graciously accommodates Gideon's request and assures him that he's with him. So then in chapter seven, Gideon pulls together an army to fight the Midianites. But God says that there's a problem. There's too many people Um, and God wants to make it clear that he is the one who is acting on Israel's behalf and it's not them who's winning the battle for themselves. So God instructs Gideon to winnow down this army and he gets it down to 300 people. And then he gives um, Gideon the command to go and attack the Midianites. But instead of going after them with swords, they go after them in this real like creative, nonviolent way, right? They they take, in one hand they have horns, and in the other hand they have torches and clay jars. And in the middle of the night, they surround the Midianite camp and they blow on the horns and they smash the jars and they wave the torches around. And in the midst of all this chaos and the commotion, the Midianites are, are disoriented, they start fighting amongst each other, and they flee from the land. Victory for Israel, right? And so if that's where the story stopped, we would have a happy ending, and Gideon would be a hero, and I wouldn't be up here preaching this morning on this topic. But instead, uh, the story continues on in Judges chapter 8, and uh, so that's where we're going to pick up reading this morning, starting with verse 4, and this morning I'll be reading from the CSB. All right, so it says, uh, Gideon and the 300 men came to the Jordan and crossed it. They were exhausted, but still in pursuit. He said to the men of Succoth, and, and Succoth was a town on the eastern edge of Israel, please give some loaves of bread to the troops under my command, because they are exhausted, for I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. But the princes of Succoth asked, are Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hands that we should give bread to your army? Basically, they're saying, no offense, uh, Gideon, but you're, you're asking us to take a pretty big gamble on your little group of people. Uh, if we help you and if you lose, the Midianites are going to come back here and they're going to make things way worse for us. So look how Gideon responds in verse 7. Gideon replied, very well, when the Lord has handed Ziba and Zelmana over to me, I will tear your flesh with thorns and briars from the wilderness. Yeah, literally there he says, I will thresh your flesh. From there he went to Penuel, which is about five miles up the road, and asked the same thing from them. The men of Penuel answered just as the men of Succoth had answered. He also told the men of Penuel, when I return safely, I will tear down this tower. So over the next few verses, Gideon pursues the Midianite army. He ends up um, attacking them when they're not expecting it, and he defeats them. And in the process, he he captures the two Midianite kings, and he makes his way back towards these two Israelite towns. We pick up in verse 13. Gideon, son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Haris. He captured a youth from the men of Succoth and interrogated him. The youth wrote down for him the names of the 77 leaders and elders of Succoth. Then he went to the men of Succoth and said, here are Zeba and Zalmona. You taunted me about them, saying, Are Ziba and Zalmanah now in your power that we should give bread to your exhausted men? So he took the elders of the city, and he took some thorns and briars from the wilderness, and he disciplined the men of Succoth with them. Some translations say he taught them a lesson. (laughs) He also tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Then he asked Ziba and Zalmanah, What kind of men did you kill at Tabor? They were like you, they said, each resembled the son of a king. So he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. Then he said to Jether, his firstborn, get up and kill them. The youth did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. Ziba and Zalmanah said, get up and strike us down yourself, for a man is judged by his strength. So Gideon got up, killed Ziba and Zalmanah, And took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Then the Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you as well as your sons and grandsons, for you delivered us from the power of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. But then he said to them, Let me make a request of you. Everyone give me an earring from his plunder. Now the enemy had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. They said, we agreed to give them. So they spread out a cloak, and everyone threw an earring from his plunder on it. The weight of the gold earrings he requested was 43 pounds of gold, in addition to the crescent ornaments and ear pendants, the purple garments on the kings of Midian, and the chains on the necks of their camels. Gideon made an ephod from all of this and put it in Ophrah, his hometown. Then all Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his household. We skip down to verse 30. Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, since he had many wives. His concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he named him Abimelech. Then Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah. So this is the rise and fall of Gideon. Uh, When we first meet Gideon, he is threshing wheat in the dark because he's afraid of his enemies. By the end of his story, he's threshing the flesh of his own people out in the open. When we first meet Gideon, he's putting a stop uh, to idolatry by tearing down an altar to a false god. By the end of his story, he is creating a new object of worship and leading people back into idolatry. When we first meet Gideon, he's humble. He considers himself the least of the least. But by the end of his story, he's full of hubris. He considers himself and acts like a king. So how did this happen? Well, let's take a closer look at three causes for Gideon's collapse, three mistakes that led to his fall. Mistake number one, tune God out. Stop paying attention to what God has to say. Don't follow his word or expect to hear from him. As we read through Gideon's story, one of the things that stands out is this shift that takes place between the first half and the second half. In the first half, in Judges 6 and 7, Gideon is in constant conversation with God, right? He has a long conversation with God about tearing down that altar to Baal. In 634, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. In 636, when he's feeling unsure about God's call on his life, he prays for confirmation and God answers him. At the beginning of chapter 7, God gives him clear and detailed instructions on how to choose an army. And in 7 verse 9, God tells him when to attack and again gives him reassurance to help overcome his fear. So all throughout the first half, all throughout Judges 6 and 7, Gideon is hearing from God. He's only doing the things that God tells him to do. He doesn't want to act unless he knows that God is with him. But in chapter 8, all of that changes. God, as we saw in that chapter, God is pretty much absent from this chapter. God doesn't tell Gideon to chase the Midianites down. God doesn't tell Gideon to torture and kill his own people. Uh, God doesn't tell Gideon to create this golden ephod. That's that's all Gideon acting all on his own. Gideon stops seeking direction. He stops praying. He stops looking to God for guidance. He tunes God out, and he starts doing what is right in his own eyes. One of the easiest ways to to collapse is to tune uh, God out. Now for us, thankfully, we have something that Gideon didn't have because we live on on this side of the cross and and the resurrection. And so we have the Holy Spirit who indwells us and seals us and who sanctifies us and transforms us and leads us, right? But we, we, we have a choice of whether to follow his lead and to listen to him or to tune him out. One of the challenges that we can face is that we don't expect to hear from God. So Dallas Willard, uh, this is the obligatory Dallas Willard portion of the (laughs) the sermon. (laughs) Dallas Willard writes that that it's too easy for for many of us to treat our faith like a formula or a set of of practices that we participate in rather than what it's really meant to be, which is a conversational relationship with a God who wants to guide us. Uh, He writes this in his book, Hearing God. Sometimes today, it seems that our personal relationship with God is treated as no more than a mere arrangement or understanding that Jesus and his Father have about us. Our personal relationship, then, only means that each believer has his or her unique account in heaven, which allows them to draw on the merits of Christ to pay their sin bills. But who does not think there should be much more to a personal relationship than that? A mere benefactor, however powerful, kind, and thoughtful, is not the same thing as a friend. Jesus says, I have called you friends. Willard reminds us that God invites us into a close, transforming friendship that involves conversation and partnership together. God wants to speak to us and to guide us. So how do we tune in To what God is speaking to us. Well, first and foremost, we create the space and the margin to read and to study and to meditate on His Word. We actively seek Him in prayer, speaking to Him and pausing to listen from Him. We practice disciplines of silence and solitude and fasting and worship. We, we fill our minds with thoughts of Him by listening to sermons and podcasts and music that focus our minds on Him. We participate as members of, of the body together, trusting that he, he uses us to speak to one another and to edify one another. And over time, we we learn to expect him to direct our thoughts and our inner impressions, and we measure those thoughts and those impressions against what we know from his word and what we know about his character, right? So actually, our, uh, as, a, as a plug, our life group curriculum for next month is going to focus all on hearing God. So if you're in a life group, you can, you can look forward to that. If you're not in a life group, you can sign up at any point. Ours has space in it, so you're welcome to join, uh, but we look forward to, to going through that. So those are some of the ways that we, that we hear from God. How do we tune God out? That's the easy part. You just do the opposite of of all those things. We fill up our lives with distractions, right? We allow our time to be consumed by our phones or entertainment or work. We allow our Bibles to collect dust. We don't pray. We withdraw from community, and instead of abiding in Him and living in the power of His Spirit, we isolate ourselves and we just do the things that come naturally to us. So that leads us to to Gideon's second mistake. If mistake number one was to tune God out, mistake number two is to feed your anger. So reading through chapter 8, it's clear that the thing that's driving Gideon more than anything else in this chapter is his anger. He's fueled by a desire for revenge. And it starts with the town of, of Succoth, right? They didn't feed his troops, so he threatens to torture them. <laughs> uh, it'd be one thing if, if he just threatened them or if he yelled at them or if he cussed them out, Right? But he makes this threat, and then he actually follows through with it in a really premeditated way. He, he finds out all the names of the leaders of this city. He gathers up thorns from the wilderness, and then he comes and he shreds their skin up. I mean, just think about like, how painful it is when you like, stab your, your thumb on a thorn when you're cutting roses or something, right? Imagine that just being scratched down your back. Nasty. Same thing with Penuel. Penuel. They don't give him food, so he threatens to come back and tear down their tower. And again, he follows through in this really premeditated way. But he doesn't just tear down their tower. He's he's on this rampage. So he tears down the tower, and then he kills the men of the city. These are his own people, fellow Israelites. And then it's time for him to deal with the Midianite kings, uh, and we find out in verse 19 that the real reason that he's been pursuing these guys in the way that he has is that they killed his brothers. And, and, and he wants revenge. And he basically tells them, I'm going to kill you because you killed them. God's not telling me to kill you. In fact, if you hadn't killed these guys by the, by the name of the Lord, I wouldn't kill you. But I'm going to kill you. And actually, I'm going to make sure that you have a shameful death. So I want my son to kill you. And poor Gideon's son is just a little kid, he doesn't want to kill him, so Gideon ends up killing these guys himself. Gideon is fueled by anger, so much so that it becomes one of the causes of his collapse. Anger is a powerful uh, emotion. It was then, it is now. Um, It's been said that we are living in an age of outrage. There's a professor who says that we're currently living in an anger incubator. When you think about politics and the pandemic and the economy and social media, especially the role that social media plays in all that, there are just so many things that are designed to make us mad and to keep us mad. I was Thinking about social media, I read this week a study out of of Germany that found that violence against refugees in that country was the highest in areas where Facebook use was the highest and that when Facebook experienced a disruption or an outage in those areas, attacks against refugees actually declined. This is one of many studies that show that social media is making us angrier and more polarized than ever. One of the things that I do, uh, or that I try to do on, on Twitter, it's kind of a discipline, is to, to follow people kind of from across the spectrum uh, of ideas. Uh, to make sure that I'm hearing voices from from all directions. and And when you do that, you you realize just how much people use anger as a tool, right? From voices on the left, it's can you believe what these right wingers are trying to do to the country? And from voices on the the right, it's like, look at how evil the left is. So if you're only listening to like one set of those voices, we get this algorithm that just boosts them. And we end up living in this echo chamber where it intensifies and it intensifies and intensifies. And we get to this place really easily where we're demonizing and dehumanizing Other people and losing sight of the fact that they are made in the image of God. And we forget the fact that God says that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. Now, not all anger is bad. Jesus got angry, Paul got angry. There are things that should make us angry. When we see injustice in the world, when we see abuses of power, When we see people harmed by sin and when we see lies being held up as truth, all of those things are rightfully, or they rightfully make us angry. In Gideon's case, he was justly angry about his brothers being killed, but unfortunately he allowed his anger to fester and to seize control of him. So the question is not whether we get angry, but what we do with that anger, And God uh, repeatedly warns us throughout scripture that we're to be really careful in how we handle anger. James 1.19 tells us to be slow to anger because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Paul warns us in Ephesians 4.26, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. So there are times when anger can be a healthy response, but if we're not careful, like Gideon, anger can send us into a spiral of sin. I ran into a situation this week at work that made me really angry. Um, not, like, just annoyed, but really angry. you get angry? I do. It was, <laughs> in fact, I told a room of people that I was livid. <laughs> like, that's... <laughs> right? So, um, yeah, I was mad. And, and I think I was rightly mad. Um, but as I was meditating on this and thinking through uh, the story of Gideon, um, I was reminded that, that I face a choice, right? I can stew in my anger. I can feed it. I can let it grow into resentment and bitterness and allow it to rob me of joy, Or I can say, God, help me to process this anger in a healthy way. Help me to be constructive in how I respond rather than destructive. So a question for you this morning is who or what in your life right now is a source of anger? And how are you handling that anger? Are you feeding it and allowing it to grow? Or are you bringing it before God and saying, Lord, show me how to process this in a healthy way? Okay, so Gideon's first two mistakes were to tune God out and defeat his anger. Mistake number three, live like a king. Toward the end of Judges 8, after Gideon has taken revenge on these cities and he's defeated the Midianites, the people come around him and they try to make him their king. And in response, Gideon says the right thing. In verse 23, he tells them, I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So for the first time in this chapter, it's the right thing to say. But unfortunately, uh, Gideon's actions don't match up with his words because his very next step is to collect all this gold and the royal robes and the royal pendants and to amass this great fortune. And he takes the gold, and in this situation, it's very similar to the golden calf incident in the book of, Jud- or in the book of Exodus. He takes this gold, and he-, he produces a golden ephod. It's this new object of worship. And ephod was kind of like a sacred uh, apron that priests would wear. It was a symbol of God's authority. And God had already commissioned one for the high priest of Israel to wear. But here, Gideon creates his own. And he brings it back to his hometown. And there in his hometown, Gideon becomes a rich and powerful guy. He marries many wives. He has 70 sons. He accumulates wealth and prestige. And to cap it all off, Gideon takes a foreigner uh, as a concubine in in direct violation of God's instructions. And he has a son with her who he names Abimelech. Do you know what Abimelech means? It means my father is king. So Gideon comes to view himself as a king. One of the interesting things is that God had actually told Israel back in Deuteronomy that, that one day he would allow them to have a king, but there were some instructions that the king needed to follow. And we read in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 17 through 20, the king is instructed, he must not acquire many wives for himself so that his heart won't go astray. Gideon acquired many wives. He must not acquire very large amounts of silver and gold for himself. Gideon acquired 43 pounds of gold. He is to read from the law all the days of his life. And as we've seen, it seems that Gideon tuned God out." So one of the tragedies with Gideon is that he acknowledges God's kingship with his lips, but not with his life. And if we're honest, that's the challenge that many of us face today too, right? As Christians, we affirm that Jesus is our king. But one of our ongoing challenges and struggles in our our Christian life is to clear away the things that compete for his place on the throne of our lives. One of the ways that we guard against that, guard against collapse in this area, is to be convinced in our hearts that Jesus is a better king than we are. That Jesus is a more worthy focus of our worship than anything else that we might put in his place. And I say that most of us probably don't struggle with the temptation to worship a golden ephod but there are other things that can become idols in our lives. An idol is anything, including good things, that take the ultimate place and become more important than they should. Like Gideon, our idols can be the obvious ones, right? Like power, pleasure, prestige, possessions. They can be the more subtle ones that Nick likes to remind us about on a regular basis. Safety, security, comfort, convenience. So this morning, I just want to invite us to ask the Spirit if there are ways that we are acknowledging God's kingship with our lips, but not with our life. What are the things for you that are competing for His proper place on the throne? Band, you can come up. So as I was thinking this week about the the fall of Gideon, I was reminded about how God is described um, toward the the end of one of the last books of the Bible. In Jude 24, God reveals himself to us as the one who is able to protect you from falling. And I was reminded, you know, we've seen in Gideon's story that there are many ways to fall. There are many causes of collapse, right? And there are steps that we can take to guard ourselves against collapse. But ultimately, we're not the ones who can keep ourselves from falling, right? It's not our willpower or our goodness or our faithfulness that keeps us in God's grace. He is the one who is able to protect us from falling. And we have a faithful father who desires to be in a conversational relationship with us. We have a a perfect king who sacrificed himself so that we could have access to his throne. And we have an indwelling spirit who leads us and who transforms us. And it's this three-in-one God who is able to protect us from falling. And so as we go back into worship this morning, I just want to close by reading these words of benediction from the book of Jude as we give praise to this God. Now to the one who is able to protect you from falling and to present you blameless and rejoicing before his glorious presence, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord belong glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now, and forever.
0: things that we experience um, in the world is this idea that anger is so much more powerful than love Um, and yet the love that God showed when he sent his son to die on the cross is the most powerful thing that we can experience We can experience it initially when we place our faith in Jesus, but we experience it ongoingly as we rehearse the gospel, as Corin said. So, one of the ways that we're going to respond is by going to the table. And uh, there's a table at the back, on the side, and the front. And what I'd like us to do is grab the elements that represent the broken body of Jesus and His shed blood, come back to our seats and take communion together and I'll give some further directions as we do that. Jason read from Jude who said, Now unto him who is able. We are not able. Um, this is not a message about do more, try harder. This is a message about the fact that God has set protections in place. For us to be able to live the kind of life that not only brings us flourishing but brings him glory one of the ways that we remember that this is not about do more try harder is this meal because this meal is not about do more try harder this meal is about replacing um, what we could not do with what he's already done we hold in our hands a representation of the broken body of jesus who willingly Sacrificed himself for our wholeness and our healing. Take and eat. We also hold in our hands what represents the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of a new covenant the blood that sets us free not only from the penalty of us and but from the power of us and take and drink our faith is a responsive faith it is god that initiated it is god that pursues and there is an invitation for response as the band continues, I feel like there's three areas that I really would like to invite you to respond in. Joe, why don't you come join me up here? The first is one of engagement with God. As, as you were hearing Jason speak, and as he was talking about the fact that, that many of us tune God out, not intentionally, but we tune God out in the sense that we don't tune in to Him. One of the reasons that we talk about engaging with God through the means of grace that He's given us is not just because spending time with Him in prayer and in devotion is good for worship, but it is protective, as you saw this morning. It protects us from ourselves. It helps us to hear God. That's the first group of people that I'd love to pray with on my left to your right, is you're saying, man, I really, I really do miss that time and I don't know what to do. I don't know how to freshly engage, but I know that I've been tuning God out and I want to just re-engage in some way. The third one is, I know I skipped the second because that's Joey, the third one is lip service. That by my lips, I say one thing and by my behavior, I do another. And uh, you need the grace of God to be able to give you the strength to live what you believe. And the last one is anger. And I I want Joey to, he feels like God has something more specific in terms of that. You can be righteously angry and act unrighteously. This is what Gideon did. It was not okay for those people to kill his brothers, but it was not okay for Gideon to do what he did. So this is not about whether you have the right to be angry. This is about whether you are acting righteously
2: in your anger. Yeah, just have the sense that someone here is holding on to anger. Um, and in a way that it's, it's turned to resentment and if it's taken away, you, are, you feel lost. Um, anger is in this resentment has made its home pretty deep, that even you want it gone. I think there's a sense that you want it gone desperately. But even at the moment of steps of it being taken away, you start to fear because it's your identity, because um, it has power. Um, and and I ask God for more. I ask for more specific. And I just have the sense that it's something to do with family, um, whether someone has in your family has done something to you and you feel angry towards that or someone has done something to someone in your family um, in the same way um, that Gideon was angry. So yeah, um, this idea that letting go of, of anger would, would just rock your world, you're so afraid of that.
0: Thanks. Joey's going to be over there. The reason we do this is because God is real. God speaks through His Holy Spirit. Uh, We believe that when God speaks through His Word, when God speaks through His Spirit, we have the privilege and opportunity to respond. And so if you're sensing any one of those three things, just a deeper sense of engaging with God, that maybe you've begun to tune Him out, a sense of, yeah, God, I say I live like this, but I really don't. Just the whole thing of anger. We would love to pray for you there. We're going to continue worshiping. We're going to have guys praying over there. Thank you, Mercy Commons. Thank you, Jason, for an outstanding message. Uh, We continue our gathering as we walk out the door to your left. uh, There's uh, coffee and donuts, and I think we've transitioned to hot coffee. I'm not sure. Um, But we would love to continue talking with you. Remember, there's the visitors lunch. Uh, There's also life groups that you can join if you aren't part of one. And uh, let's go out there and be the church. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.